What we want to concentrate on is the peace accords which have taken place in the past five months uh, and use that as the basis of our talk. God willing, in end of March at the Kent Prophecy Day, we can look at some of the more usual things that we deal with. But this time we're going to concentrate on peace in the Middle East. And we have seen some remarkable things. COVID has pushed forward God's plan and purpose. And at the end, we should just have a brief couple of slides looking at COVID and looking at Brexit. So we've got so much has been happening to convince us that we are in these last days. And with Bible in hand, we want to see how current affairs are reflecting Bible prophecy in a really remarkable way, because we're seeing things now which I thought we wouldn't see until after we have been called to the judgment seat. But in the mercy of God, we've been privileged to see this time of uh, a peace beginning in the Middle East. Now, let's just give you a bit of structure of how we're going to tackle our talk this afternoon. So what we're aiming to see is how the Middle East changes are so exciting to Bible students. And I'm going to make this rather startling claim that what's actually been happening in the past few months is God's preparation for Arab nations to live in Christ's kingdom. Now, in order to justify that claim, we need to do a bit of Bible principles, first principles, and we're going to start off with looking at the Abrahamic promises very briefly. And then the second basic principle, look at the parable that the Lord Jesus gave us about uh, those sheep and goat nations in Matthew. Uh, and then lastly, look at God's basis for judgment, which is applicable not only to the nations, but is very much applicable to ourselves. And then having laid that foundation, we can then look at the practical workings and see what has been happening, these Abraham Accords, and spend most of our time looking at the Abraham Accords uh, and looking at scripture to support that. Uh, and then towards the end, just see a world dividing into two camps, pro-Israel and anti-Israel. Uh, and then finally, as I say, COVID and Brexit. So ambition, we've got a lot of ground to cover and uh, we will now make a start. So we live in a democratic society. Most countries are democratic, but some live in totalitarian regimes. Uh, and what's going to come, the coming kingdom of God is neither democrat nor totalitarian. It's a theocracy with God at its pinnacle and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as king upon the earth. With him, the uh, foremost in the kingdom will be his followers, the saints, and beneath them will be the nation of Israel, the chief nation of the mortal population on the earth. Uh, and next to them will be other nations which are descended from Abraham, Abraham's children, and last but not least will be those Gentile nations who have accepted the Lord Jesus as Israel's king uh, and bowed the knee to his rule. 
Those will be the nations that will live in the kingdom age. So what we've been witnessing is God's preparation, not only for Israel, but for Abraham's children. We're going to concentrate on the preparation for Abraham's children to be blessed in the kingdom age and to be part of the sheep nations rather than the goat nations. So the Abrahamic promises, uh, God made seven promises to Abraham, uh, the first of which was that I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So that's indicating that eventually all nations that live upon the earth and in the kingdom age will be blessed in Abraham. In other words, they will recognise Abraham uh, as the one who provides the blessings. Now, the last of the promises which God made is in Matthew, in Genesis chapter 22, after uh, Abraham had offered up Isaac or was prepared to offer up Isaac and God made this stupendous promise to him because of his faith that in blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee as the seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. So it's indicating that all nations are going to be blessed in Abram's seed. And we know from Galatians chapter 3 who that seed is, is Christ. And in the Lord Jesus will all nations of the earth be blessed. And that the Lord Jesus is going to possess the gate of his enemies. It's rather an old-fashioned term. A uh, more modern version puts it, your seed will take the land of those who are against them. If you possess the gate of your enemies, you are in control of that particular people. So God is promising that when the Lord Jesus is back as king, all nations will be blessed in him because they will accept him and, as their king. So just to summarise, all nations are going to be blessed. Um, uh, let's rephrase that. All nations are blessed who blessed Israel, but those that curse Israel are going to be cursed. They will not attain to the kingdom. Uh, and all nations are blessed when the Son of God is king over all nations. So it's clear that not all nations are going to live in the kingdom. And we read by way of introduction, we're going to come back to that chapter, but I just want to extract the last verse that we read, which read like this, didn't it? For the nation and the kingdom, this is Isaiah 60 verse 12, the nation and the kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. So it's, quite clear and it might not be acceptable to this woke generation but God is in control it's his kingdom and he has declared that only those nations who are accepting of his son as Israel's king and their king will 
live in the kingdom age. Now we can think of another passage, and Psalm 2 is one of them, which paints this clear picture that not all nations are going to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their king. They're going to oppose him. And Psalm 2 shows that picture of the kings of the earth setting themselves, their rulers taking counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, the Lord Jesus, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. So they're going to be those nations who resist and will not accept the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the psalm ends, kiss the son of God, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So it's only by accepting the Lord Jesus uh, and trusting in the God of the father of the Lord Jesus Christ that nations will be allowed to live in the kingdom. Now, in the first two talks, we, we've gone to uh, Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to just revisit it very briefly, just to extract this point, and uh, as has been made in the second talk, that here we have um, uh, God's viewpoint of what King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his second chapter of Daniel uh, as four metals are now replaced by four wild beasts. Uh, and the fourth one is described in great detail. It's the only one that had horns. It had this little horn which spake blasphemous things. And uh, it was representative, is representative, uh, the little horn on the Roman beast is representative of the papal Roman Catholic system, which has persecuted both saints and Jews for millennia. And we saw in the earlier talks that judgment is going to be poured out upon them. But what I want us to see in this reference is, is that there is a differentiation. As far as the European, uh, Russian uh, fourth beast is concerned, it was slain. Its body was destroyed, given to the burning flame. And that language is picked up in Revelation. But as far as the other three beasts were concerned, uh, they had their dominion taken away. In other words, they had to submit to the Lord Jesus, had to acknowledge him as their king. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. We understand by that time period, the thousand year and the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a one group of nations which are going to be destroyed and not enter into the kingdom. There are going to be others who submit to Christ's rule and will enter in. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. You might want to turn this up. And for speed, I have been just reading off the screen. But Matthew 25 is a chapter which deals with judgment. The first two parables recorded there are of the virgins and the parable of the talents. And these are parables which apply to the household. But when we come to uh, verse uh, 
31 onwards, the Lord Jesus very specifically is dealing with another aspect. It's dealing with the nations. And so just reading verses 31 and 33. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all the nations, the the is in the original Greek, gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. So note the setting. As we saw in the second study, that when Jesus is in glory in Jerusalem, will be after the judgment of the saints, will be after uh, the invasion of Israel, will be after the battle of Armageddon. So this is now looking at the nations and whether they will be allowed to enter into the kingdom. Uh, and Jesus uses the parable of sheep and goats. So there'll be sheep nations, acceptable goat nations, which are not. Uh, and if you just want to flip back to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, uh, where it describes how the when the Lord Jesus sits on the throne of his glory, exactly the same phrase, then the 12 disciples will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. So we know this is post our judgment. This is uh, after the judgment upon uh, many nations that have come against Jerusalem who've been destroyed. It's now the turn of the nations that remain um, as to their position. And so the verdict is given to the sheep and the goat nations. Uh, and in verse 40, the king answers to the sheep nations, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And in verse 45, it talks about the goat nations. Uh, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. Now, who are the brethren? Well, the Lord Jesus was born as a Jew. His brethren are the Jewish people. And so it's how people have treated with the Jews that will be the basis of their judgment. Now, the, uh, I'm sorry, just lost my track. Um, I've realised I must have skipped over a slide, but never mind. So it's the basis uh, of their judgments and how they dealt with the Jewish people. Uh, and we, as brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus, we have been adopted, haven't we, into Christ's nation through the waters of baptism. We've embraced the hope of Israel. We've become Jews after the spirit. So it's how the nations have dealt with God's people will be the basis uh, of his judgment. Now, I, I seem to have skipped um, looking at Ezekiel uh, and chapter 33, which describes God's basis for judgment. And it's how we are at the end of the journey. Just turn with me 
to Ezekiel chapter 33. In three places in Ezekiel, God outlines to Ezekiel the basis of judgment. And uh, he, he says to them in uh, verse 18 of Ezekiel chapter 33, when the righteous turneth from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he shall even die um, thereby. And uh, if in verse 19, the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. So it's where we are at the end of the journey. And for the nations, it will be how they are at the time of their judgment, how they have been dealing with uh, the nation of Israel. And so I realise that um, the sentence that's passed in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46 is that the goat nations go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous, the sheep nations, go into life eternal. Now, the authorised version rather confuses things because the word for everlasting and the word for eternal is exactly the same. It's this Greek word, aeonios, um, which means of that age. So for the goat nations, the punishment of that age is to be excluded from the kingdom. For the sheep nations who have blessed Israel, um, they will have the life of their age, a wonderful life under the wise rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I had uh, got myself totally confused. Um, here we come to this uh, basis of acceptability. So those are the three passages in Ezekiel. Um, chapter 3, verse 16 to 21, chapter 18, verses 1 to 32, and chapter 33, 1 to 20, all deal with this basis of acceptability. And it's quite interesting because Ezekiel is the prophet that tells us so much about this coming age. Um, Ezekiel 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, and then uh, the final chapters about the temple. So it's quite fitting. So uh, if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. So it's how we are at the end of the journey. And that gives us hope. If we feel we're not living up to the mark, well, there is opportunity. Christ hasn't yet come back. But if we have lived a long and righteous life, but then turn away, then we will be rejected. So it's where we are at the end of the journey that counts. And I'll say for the nations, it will be at this time of the end, how are they dealing with Israel? Are they opposed to Israel or for Israel? Will depend on whether they will enter the kingdom uh, under Israel's king. So we've seen preparation of the nations to live in Christ's kingdom by looking at these principles, the Abrahamic promises that it revolves around blessing uh, Israel and the promises that Israel's um, king will be victorious and possess the seat of his enemies and all the nations in the kingdom will be subject to 
uh, Abraham's greatest son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, and we looked at the parable of the nations, how they will, there will be sheep nations and goat nations, depending how they treated Christ's brethren, his nation of Israel. And we've briefly uh, looked at this basis of acceptability, which links with those other things. So let's now see, um, spend most of our time now looking at the practical outworking of these things. What, what are we seeing today? And we should be looking at scriptures to back up what we have to say. But I just want to look at the background to the Abraham Accords, who signed up to them and what are they signed up to? Uh, and why are they so significant? Well, we need to look at some background because it would appear that uh, they've just sprung from nowhere, these Abraham Accords. But of course, we know that isn't the case. The angels under the direction of the Lord Jesus have been working behind the scenes in preparation. And they haven't sprung from nowhere. We need to go back 25 years to the time when Jordan made peace with Israel in 1994. Or we have to go back 42 years when Egypt made peace with Israel in 1979. Now, the problem was that both those two peace agreements have been termed cold pieces. Um, because they've operated on a government-to-government level and the ordinary people of Jordan and the ordinary people of Egypt weren't involved, they haven't so far, I think things are going to rap rapidly change, um, they haven't produced a lot of peace for the area. As I say, it was not, it hadn't involved the people and bear in mind that the ordinary inhabitants of Egypt and the ordinary inhabitants of Jordan have been brought up on a, a diet of hating Israel, hating the Jews, um, it, right from the beginning, the school textbooks full of passages showing how evil the Jews are and how the Israelis have stolen their land. That's the diet they've been fed on. So I, I don't know quite how long ago, but I think it was about uh, 10 to 15 years ago, um, Israeli President Netanyahu realised that the only way to have successful peace is to involve the people. And so uh, about 20 diplomats, men and women, were sent out undercover into Arab nations um, to working undercover as business people and they began to build up um, trade links uh, between the Arab nations and Israel, pushing Israeli goods and technologies. But in addition to that, fostering a spirit of friendship toward the Jews and showing that there was another side to the story from the Palestinian side and endeavoring to change attitudes. Uh, and that's over the years, and this was a, a very long-term project by Netanyahu, um, bore fruit and has borne fruit. So that was been working quietly, bubbling away underneath the surface. 
But I wanted to go back to uh, six years ago, virtually this time of the year, 2015. Uh, Obama was president and he was keen to uh, sign a deal with Iran, this joint comprehensive plan of action, which he thought would contain Iran uh, and prevent her getting nuclear weapons. Now, Israel and the other Arab nations knew that was futile, that you couldn't trust Iran, uh, and that Iran would take every opportunity, having uh, acquired a lot of money as a result of this uh, plan of action, um, would use it to proceed with making nuclear weapons. So what Netanyahu did was to get himself invited to speak to Congress, very much against Obama's wishes. Uh, and a, a lot of the Congress people actually boycotted him. But it was uh, just this week, uh, Israelis have been celebrating the Feast of Purim. Well, in 2015, it was next week. And this was on the eve of the Feast of Purim. And Netanyahu started and he's wonderful with his <coughs> rhetoric, uh, talking about a man, uh, an Iranian, who sought to destroy the Jewish people, Haman, and explain what happened to him. And he said, you know, if the America is going to persist upon this line and not support Israel uh, against Iran, then Israel would have to stand on her own feet. Even if Israel has to stand alone, Israel will stand, he thundered. In actual fact, this turned out to be a turning point. They didn't realize it at the time. But the many Arab nations who were also listening in realized that here was a man who was prepared to stand up to Obama. If Obama wasn't prepared to help Israel against uh, Iran, then Israel will have to go it alone. And they thought to themselves, well, we're in the same position. America is not going to defend us. It doesn't defend Israel. Let's turn to uh, Israel for our help in standing up to Iran. And so, uh, although Netanyahu wasn't successful, the um, comprehensive plan of action was a few months later signed and uh, Netanyahu was very much justified in what he had to say, but it bore fruit. The Arabs changed their attitude towards Israel. And then a few years later, Obama was gone. 2017, Donald Trump became president. And in 2018, he withdrew America from this comprehensive plan of action. And within a few months of becoming president, he sent his Jewish son-in-law around to the Arab world to broker a peace in this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. His task was written off as impossible. Um, and he didn't actually succeed in his goal, but he succeeded in something even greater that the Arab nations recognized that Israel wasn't the problem. 
It was the Palestinians' intransigence, which was the problem, and their refusal to accept the existence of Israel prevented there being peace in the Middle East. Uh, and, and so it was that great changes came about as a result of this, again, behind-the-scenes work of um, Trump's son-in-law. Now, we have to remember that there never has been a Palestinian state. The Arabs who live in the PLO areas are mainly Syrian Arabs who were under Ottoman Turkish rule and then came under British rule in 1917. Um, but there never has been a Palestinian state. Israel hasn't stolen a state from them. But it all came at a very opportune time because last year all these strands came together, that underground work of those diplomats, Netanyahu's speech in 2015, working with the Arabs. The Arabs, seeing that there was a prospect, which came to pass, of Biden, who was a close member of the Obama government, that, and he was saying that if he came into power, he would seek to uh, re-sign up to this deal. This really alarmed the Arab nations. They could see that this was a wrong step. Uh, and so with Krishna's background work as well, all these things and COVID too, all led to 2020 being the time when the Arabs openly acknowledged that Israel had a right to their land and that they were prepared to work with Israel. And so they signed up to these Abraham Accords. Why Abraham Accords? Well, uh, dear Wikipedia says, and it's quoting from a, an article, the Accords are named after the patriarch Abraham, regarded as a prophet by both the religions of Judaism and Islam, and traditionally considered a shared patriarch of the Jewish and Arab peoples by way of Isaac and Ishmael. So first of all, we need to know, well, who are the Arab nations? They were not labeled clearly on a map, are they? Well, this is the map of the 22 Arab nations. They're all in a, an Arab nation league. So they're spread across uh, North Africa and the Middle East, and they themselves form part of the Muslim world. The Muslim world is greater than the Arab world, um, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Turkey, uh, and other nations further over to the East Pakistan. So they form part, the Arab nations form part of this Islamic world uh, and divided into Sunni and Shia, um, both derive their power from Muhammad, um, but uh, are greatly opposed one to another. It's over matters of succession, who has the right to succeed from Muhammad. But the interesting thing is that they recognize Abraham, they practice circumcision. Uh, many of these countries are not actually descendants of Abraham, but they have been conquered and they have adopted Islam. Uh, and so because Muhammad claimed, and that claim is disputed, he claimed descent from Abraham, um, so these nations believe that they too are descended from Abraham. And so 
this apparent common link between Jew and Arab drives forward this new peace movement. So which nations have signed up to peace with Israel? Well, so far, um, five of them have. But just I'll just re-emphasize that countries like Iran are not Arab. Uh, Turkey isn't Arab. And of course, Israel isn't Arab. But the Arab nations that have signed up are little Bahrain, but very powerful, very influential. The United Arab Emirates, again, not a very big territory, but have tremendous influence. Uh, Sudan, and then over on the far side, Morocco. And then lastly, um, but off this map, um, and it's on the borders of China and India, and isn't an Arab nation, is Bhutan. Now, there are others waiting in the wings, and countries like Oman and Saudi Arabia and Algeria are thought to be imminently on the pathway to also following these other nations in recognising Israel's uh, right to live in the land and want to work with Israel because they see her as their defence against an aggressive Iran. So what are they signed up to? Well, that's the paperwork of the Abraham Accords. You won't be able to read it on your screen, but let's enlarge it. And we're not going to read it all, but just taking extracts from it. We, the undersigned, recognise the importance of maintaining and strengthening peace in the Middle East and around the world based on mutual understanding and coexistence, as well as respect for human dignity and freedom, including religious freedom. That's interesting, coming from Arab nations. Uh, we encourage efforts to promote interfaith, intercultural dialogue, to advance a culture of peace among the three Abrahamic religions and all humanity. We believe the best way to address challenges is through cooperation and dialogue, and that developing friendly relations among the states advances the interests of lasting peace in the Middle East and around the world. We seek tolerance and respect, we support science, we seek an end to radicalization. We pursue a vision of peace, security and prosperity in the Middle East and around the world. In this spirit, we're warmly welcomed and are encouraged by the progress already made in establishing diplomatic relations between Israel and its neighbours in the region under the principles of the Abraham Accords. We are encouraged by the ongoing efforts to consolidate and expand such friendly relations based on shared interests and a shared commitment to a better future. So that's what they signed up to. So why is it that we as Christians and Bible students are so excited by this. Well, it's because it's the last key in Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 tells us of all the different things that have got to happen before God comes down into the land. Israel's got to go back to the land. It's done that. Israel's got to be prosperous. She is prosperous. She's got to be riches in all sorts of ways. But the one thing that hasn't yet happened is dwelling in peace. So let's just, we know the words, well, I'm sure. Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 9 to 11 says that, Gog, you're going to come down like a storm, like a cloud to cover the land. Not only you, but a great company of peoples. 
intent on driving out Israel. Um, at that time, you shall think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Uh, and we've long pondered, you know, how can Israel ever reach that situation? She's armed to the teeth. But Ezekiel says there's going to be a change. And it seems to be that it is from a position of strength that Israel uh, is dwelling in peace. But she's able to dwell in unwalled villages and dwell safely or confidently, um, dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. So it seems that we are on the cusp of such a situation developing. We now see the nations around who have been at war willing to cooperate with Israel. And so that tells us we're, we're much closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus and the events that have got to happen. But notice it says of Go that it's an evil thought that causes her to come down. Now, the matter is uh, reconfirmed, as it were, in verse 14 of Ezekiel 38. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, thus saith Yahweh, in that day, when my people of Israel dwell safely, shalt thou not know it. And interestingly, Vine says of that word, yada, to know, by observing and reflective thinking, he makes the comment, the knower has actual involvement with or in the object of the knowing. So that's indicating by the use of this word, that Russia has played a significant role in bringing about this time of peace. And then when all is peaceful, she seizes the opportunity to take control, to wipe the Jews off from the face of the world. Now, only this Wednesday, the Times headline, could Putin be a Middle East peacemaker? Fascinating article, but we're seeing tremendous changes, young people and brethren and sisters. And so it was uh, five months ago, 15th of September, the leaders of the UAE and Bahrain met in uh, America with Netanyahu and Trump to sign the Abraham Accords. And in the past few months, we, we can see it's, it's a very real peace. Both sides are very eager to deal with each other, to visit each other, trade with each other. And the business potential is absolutely enormous, but it also brings stability. And it's very interesting that the, that was in September. In October, it was that Sudan says, we want to sign up to peace with Israel. Now, this was remarkable because, if we're old enough, uh, Sudan was where in 1967 the Arab League met together and said, no, 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 no to peace with Israel, no to recognition of Israel, no to negotiations with Israel. 
And in fact, Sudan, until very recently, was used by Iran as a forward base for supplying arms to Hamas to use against Israel. Many times Israeli planes came and as new supplies entered into Sudan before they could be distributed upwards, would suddenly be uh, evaporated under the bombing of Israel. So how remarkable that this nation who was actively at war with Israel has now said we want to deal with Israel and be at peace with her. A, a, a great change of attitude is sweeping across the region. And then uh, Trump tweeted on the 10th of December that Morocco has also said that she wants to sign up. Uh, now Morocco has a thriving or had a thriving Jewish community. Most of them are now emigrated to Israel. Um, but due to pressure from the Arab League, um, Morocco had to break off her ties with Israel, but now she is reinstalling those ties and both countries are looking forward to doing business together again. And then finally, as I say, little Bhutan, um, but it's not a, an Arab country, has said that she wants peace with Israel. So why is this all so significant? Well, it, it is that these nations have been driven through circumstances to look to Israel. They need Israel. Why they need us, the Abraham Accords and the Middle Eastern innovation. And um, this article, interesting article, ended in this new age of international cooperation. The Abraham Accords sets a precedence for fruitful economic growth between former adversaries. As more countries in the region join them, they can help make the Middle East into a modern enterprising promised land. Well, you know, we know the other side of the story, but we know that there has to be peace and stability in the Middle East before Go comes down thinking her evil thought. So they just, uh, UAE Israel peace agreement has created a new mood in the Middle East. The Arab-Israeli conflict may finally be over. Uh, and this was just this week in the Telegraph on Wednesday. Uh, rabbis head to nurture Jewish faith in the United Arab Emirates. There's a, a thriving um, Jewish community now can come out into the open. The hotels that want to serve uh, kosher food and want to learn how to do it. And these uh, young men have gone there to show them the way. It's, it's so exciting. It's such a warm peace. They want to deal with Israel. And they need Israel's help in their desalination, irrigation, and the ways that Israel can help them feed their peoples. And because of the slump in oil prices, they need Israel technology to provide them with some uh, extra income, uh, not relying upon oil anymore. But more especially, they want Israel's defense capabilities they see threats from Turkey, they see threats from Iran, and they see Israel as the one that will help them. And because of COVID, they need tourism. It's absolutely slumped. Now there are lots of Jews wanting to go, and people from the UAE and Bahrain want to come to Israel. So as soon as they can, there will be extensive to and froing. 
Uh, and there's real prospect for Israel becoming a distribution hub for Arab oil, getting it across into the Mediterranean, say, going through the Suez Canal. And for Israel especially, but it also applies to the Arab nations, because their airplanes are now allowed to fly over each other's territory, it's drastically cut uh, times for Israel, especially uh, traveling to India and across the world, they can go much more directly. And the business potential is absolutely enormous. But it also solves the dilemma that countries have. Do we deal with Israel? Do we deal with Arabs? If we deal with one, we upset the other. If we deal with them. But they don't have to worry now. You can deal with both. No longer are the Arabs going to be upset by your relations with Israel. This is a remarkable change, brothers and sisters and young people. No wonder it's hailed as historic. But where does this leave the Palestinians? Well, Biden is pressing for a two-state solution. Well, that, that's, that's dead in the water, isn't it? That's what... Well, been tried since 1948 and every time the Palestinians have refused to accept Israel existing as a state. They want a one state, a Jew-free land. Israel is resisting that. Now we know from scripture that uh, uh, Israel is going to survive um, and Although Hamas and Fatah, their charters, seek to uh, eliminate Israel from the land, there's got to be a fundamental change, uh, and they'll have to submit to living peacefully alongside Israel. We know from Ezekiel 38 that Israel remains on the so-called West Bank, the mountains of Israel, at the time when Gog comes down. So it is quite clear that uh, they have their place and that the Palestinians have got to subject themselves to Israel. But there's interesting, um, in May, they're having elections if they ever get held. That might change things. But somehow the Israelis and the Palestinians have got to live together. And the majority uh, of the Palestinians would far rather live under Israeli rule than under the corrupt terrorist control that they are under now. But there's an indication that even though Palestinians will submit to Israel and will live peaceably with them, when Go comes down against them, then they will turn and uh, go back to uh, looking to go back to Russia and they'll turn sides and as a result of that because they will have backed the wrong horse because Christ will come Gogan forces will be destroyed uh, and then Israel will come to deal with the Palestinians and it's interesting Isaiah 11 and verse 14 talks about Israel shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west and the east, Edom, Moab, Ammon. Now, we know there are no Philistines living in the land, but we have to say, well, who are living on the Philistine territory? And this is the Palestinians. Uh, and how interesting that Isaiah divides these 
latter-day Philistines into an Eastern group and a Western group. And that's exactly what we have, haven't we, on the so-called West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So it, it, it indicates to us that they're going to uh, turn back away from Israel and therefore be punished because they're not blessing Israel. And what happens to them is that they're going to be moved out of the land because that land is going to become Israel's inheritance. And in fact, Joel chapter three, which we know is all about the time of the end, speaks of Tyre, Zidon, coasts of Palestine. So the Lebanon, uh, Gaza area, um, the children of Judah and the children of Jerusalem, you have sold unto the Grecians. And I believe that when Go comes down, uh, they're going to, as I say, join up with Gog and use their powers to get rid of the Jews that are in the land and sell them off to the Grecians. And what God says, I'm going to turn things around. You know, when the enemy are being defeated and Israel is successful and Jesus is king, then they're going to get their reward and God's going to return their recompense upon their heads uh, and they're going to be sold to the Sabaeans. Well, the Sabaeans are right down in the south of Arabia. We think of Yemen and uh, Yemen and Oman as being where the Sabaeans are. So they're going to be deported down there, but they'll live in the, in the kingdom, but in a new territory. So going back to the reading that we took, we shall, you know, bring things together. That the multitude of camels shall cover thee, says uh, verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 60. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They'll bring gold and incense, show forth the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Now, Midian is Abraham's son through Keturah. Uh, Ephah is Midian's firstborn, so Abraham's grandson. And Sheba is uh, Abraham's grandson by Keturah. Um, Kedar is uh, Ishmael's secondborn, so Abraham's grandson through Hagar. And the Baoth is uh, Abraham's grandson by Hagar. So these three are related to Abraham through Keturah, and these two are related to Abraham through Hagar, and they will be blessed. They will bring their offerings and their gold. Those offerings will be accepted on God's altar. The gold will be used to glorify the house of my glory, the temple that will be built, that was mentioned in Talk 1. So we see the nations, the Arab nations, coming up to Jerusalem. And furthermore, there's this fascinating passage in Isaiah chapter 19 speaks of the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians aren't um, related to uh, Abraham. They're descendants of uh, Ham through uh, Mizraim. But in that day, the Egyptians shall know Yahweh and do sacrifice and oblation. They will vow to Yahweh and perform it. So that's the end picture that Egypt's going to be blessed, it's going to worship Yahweh. How does that arise? Well, this is the stepping stones to it. God's going to smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. When does it get smitten? 
Well, Daniel chapter um, 11 tells us that when Gog comes down, he comes down against Israel and against Egypt. So Egypt's going to be smitten when the northern invader comes down. Then uh, subsequently Christ and the saints come, destroy the northern invader. Egypt then is free from that bondage, so he's going to be healed, returns to worshipping God. Uh, and in that day, there shall be an highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Syrians shall come down to Egypt and Egypt into Syria, and they will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel shall be the third with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Yes, Israel, the chief, but equally blessed with them are going to be Egypt and Assyria, because I believe in these last days, they're going to turn from their animosity to bless Israel and therefore will be blessed. So Assyria. Now, Assyria was the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates and on either side of those two rivers. And Iraq is the country that corresponds today to the old Assyria. It was founded by Shem. His second born son was Asher. And he went and founded Assur and founded the Assyrian Empire. So, very interestingly, we learn in one of the oldest prophecies, 3,500 year old prophecy of Balaam, as recorded in Numbers chapter 24 about the end for Asher. First of all, in verses 19-20, he looks on Amalek and takes up his parable. Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever. Now, earlier in verse 7 of the chapter, he had talked about Amalek under the phrase of Agag. Interestingly, the Septuagint version puts Gog. Amalek was the traditional enemy of Israel's sort of destruction and the latter day power that's going to equally look to destroy Israel is the latter day Gog, the latter day Agag, the latter day Amalek is going to perish forever. Uh, and Balaam in verses 23 and 24 says, uh, alas, who shall live when God doeth this? Ships shall come from the coast of Kittim and shall afflict Asher, and shall afflict Eber, and he, Amalek, shall perish forever. And again, that ties in with Daniel chapter 11, that king of the north comes forth with many ships, comes from Kittim, Cyprus, takes the British bases there, but is going to afflict Asher and afflict Eber, not going to destroy them, but afflict them. Interesting word there. So Asher is Monday Iraq uh, and Eber, um, uh, which means the land beyond the river, and Eber is very closely related to the word Hebrew, is Israel. So the two places that this latter-day Amalek power is going to hone in on is Israel and Iraq, which shows to us that 
Iraq is not on the side of the northern invader, but is friends with Israel, and so will be blessed, as we saw in that quotation from Isaiah chapter 19. Now we know that, as um, already been mentioned, uh, that there is an Elijah work centered on the religious Jews in Israel, and we see God's preparation for that. But running in parallel, there are other passages which indicate to us that there is a work among the local Arab nations and that probably be led by Abraham. Now, we haven't time to deal with this times already on, um, but if you look at Isaiah uh, 42 and verses 10 and 12, it, it talks about Kedar, who is uh, one of Abraham's grandsons, before it talks in verses 13 and 16 about Israel being saved. It indicates that there is a prior work um, going on. Uh, and the same in Haggai 3, Verse seven, it, it talks about Cush and Midian, and uh, sorry, Cush and Midian, before it talks about the saving of Israel in verses twelve and thirteen, and then in Isaiah twenty-one, verse eleven to fifteen, very interesting section talks about Juma and Dedan and Teman, all related to Abraham, who at the time when Israel is invaded by Gog and Jews flee, are actually helping the Jews and therefore are going to be blessed. So it, it indicates that there is a work going on, just as there is in Israel, among these Arabs, to prepare them for this great change of a new king, Israel's king, that they will submit to and come into covenant relation with Israel. Now, in the first talk, uh, various dates were put forward, and quite a few seem to land about 10 years hence. I just want to make clear that there probably uh, is a very strong indication there's quite a time interval from the coming of the Lord Jesus and the judgment upon the household to the invasion of Israel and the destruction of the Gogin forces and Israel's king coming to uh, the Mount of Olives. This is very much based on Leviticus 23 and the details of the seventh month, and I'll just very briefly whiz through it. So on the first day was the Feast of Trumpets, on the tenth day was the Solemn Day of Atonement, then on the fifteenth day the Feast of Tabernacles began, ended on the 22nd, and then on the 23rd there was a Holy Assembly. And I believe that corresponds, like the first of the month, the return of Christ to the household, the blowing of the trumpets, the resurrection from the dead. And the Day of Atonement corresponds to the saving of Israel uh, in the Battle of Armageddon. And before that has taken place, they will have been invaded by Gog. Feast of Tabernacles corresponds to the kingdom being fully established, all nations submitting and the ending of the feast, the end of the millennium. And then the solemn assembly points to the fact that after the end of the thousand years, second judgment, all will be immortal. But the 10, day, ten years, 10 days um, between the return and the Armageddon, I believe, represents 10 years, and that's a 10-year period. So if from the time point that Christ is going to um, be king in 2032-33, round about then, then the return of the Lord Jesus is very, very 
imminent. So I just want to indicate that there is a lot of work and a lot of things will drop into place during this period between Christ's return to his household and Christ's return in power and glory to save Israel and to judge the nations. So nations are dividing. These are pro-Israel, um, Britain, and there's little Bhutan just off India, uh, are off the map, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Britain. These are nations which will be blessed in the kingdom age because they're working with Israel. And against them are nations like Iran and Turkey who are so much want to see Israel destroyed. And from Ezekiel 38, the um, image of the fourth beast's powers, uh, they are uh, dividing. Uh, and again, it's so interesting how there has been an uptick in anti-Semitism both in Europe and Russia. Um, the, the latest thing is opposed to Israel because of the vaccine. Whatever next. So we're nearly there. Covid has been used by God as part of his growing judgments on the godless world and it's brought normal life to a standstill and yet at the same time it's made great changes. It's put extra pressure on the UK to leave the EU, lest we have to pay into the vast bailout fund that we needed. And yet, on the other hand, it's driven the EU together, hasn't it, COVID, to work together. And it, it's brought India, and as significant as the Eastern Tarshish, uh, as a replacement for China, for Australians, this country. And it's pressured nations to sign up to deals with the UK because they're flagging economies. Uh, and it's all driven Britain to have uh, increase her ties to Israel. So we see wonderfully how God has made preparation and God is moving things forward. And so, you know, we're not going to look at this, but God willing, we can see how these things are working out uh, when we look at them, God willing, at the end of March. But Things are moving very rapidly and the Queen is holding her position on the throne. She's entered her 70th year and those who listen to my talks will know the significance from Isaiah 23. But God foretold that the latter day Tyre would be forgotten for 70 years according to the days of one king. Most kings and queens don't rule for 70 years. Quite exceptional to have British monarch now in her 70th year, and it says, at the end of 70 years, the Lord will revisit Tyre. She shall commit whoredom, um, fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth. And that, that period is, is imminent. 70 years we can date from her first royal tour, which would end in October of this year, or from when she became queen, uh, to just under a year's time. And so I see that this coming year is going to be a time of great conflict between the UK and the EU, a lot of conflict. Uh, the deal hasn't yet been signed by the EU, bear that in mind. So COVID has driven forward a lot of things. We've concentrated on the um, Middle East peace, but these aren't random happenings. These are all the hand of God working through the angels. And it's how we're going to respond. And brothers and sisters and young people, we won't be able to say to the master, you didn't warn us you were coming. 
So my final slide, Milestones is out. If you haven't got your copy, um, send uh, go to milestonesuk.org and order your copy because it will deal with what I've talked about in much greater detail. Every three months in the Bible magazine, I do an update. And then three or four times a week, Milestone Snippets looks at things that I've gleaned off the web and put together. Just send me an email to request those. So thank you for your patience.